Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. For 180 years, the forested land south of central Atlanta was called a variety of names. Swaths of it became a plantation, and then after the Civil War, the old Atlanta prison farm, where generations of poor black people were forced to labor, first as slaves and then as arrestees, primarily for crimes of poverty. Another part eventually became Entrenchment Creek Park, a public forest growing on top of WPA infrastructure from the 1930s, used by a range of neighbors from across the south side of Atlanta. A decade ago, city planners began drawing them together into a South River forest vision. A luscious urban forest spanning hundreds of acres tied into the landmark Beltline bike trail and acting as a permanent ecological reserve. This South River forest vision was beautiful, but could not yet be thought of as even minorly utopian. It had to be dismantled by police violence first, and only then could it be recomposed through the living practices of a collective movement weaving together utopian elements from past, present, and future. In May 2020, the police murder of George Floyd triggered a nationwide uprising that at times even jumped over national borders, with clashes spreading to Canada, the UK, and France, among other countries. In Atlanta, initial demonstrations in late May became a mass rebellion against white supremacy and police. The local black elite tried to stem protests by drawing on an imaginary of the city as a space of black excellence. Most explicitly, the rapper T.I., evoked a capitalist fantasy of Atlanta as the Marvel Comics utopia Wakanda. People like me, Killer Mike, other artists, creatives, uh, other people who come from our culture and other people who rise up out of the wreckage of the struggle that we all experience just by being born a certain color in this country. Uh, but Atlanta is a place uh, where we can set an example of prosperity, and we've done that for generations. People like Doc, Dr. King, uh, uh, Maynard Jackson, Ambassador Young have paved the way for us. And it, when everything else goes away, when you don't get treated right in New York, when you don't get treated right in LA, when you can't get treated right in Detroit, when you don't get treated right in St. Louis, when you don't get treated right in, in Alabama, Atlanta has been here for us. This city don't deserve it. However, I understand that a lot of others do. But we can't do this here. This is Wakanda. It's sacred. It must be protected. Tens of thousands of young black people rejected his efforts to send them home, drawing on more complex and visceral experiences of how white supremacy and exploitation can thrive in a city managed by a black elite. But this emphasizes the importance of utopian horizons in defining contemporary political possibilities. The uprising in Atlanta was reignited and intensified by the June 12, 2020 murder of Rayshard Brooks in a Wendy's drive-through. Demonstrators burned down the fast food joint, ushering in an open and experimental period for the space. Participants described this movingly in a piece called At the Wendy's. On the day the Wendy's burnt down, alien peace police were left to shout through their bullhorns at a local crowd that ignored and moved past them without the slightest regard. Attempts to organize the crowd along racial lines white people to the front, and so on, were almost entirely ineffective. 
While a few people were duped into standing on the highway to mimic the effects of traffic, down on the road below, the bulk of the crowd was able to collaborate and coordinate ballistics and weapons across racial lines. The myth of the outside agitator sounded like a sick joke in the ears of everyone on the ground. The first days of the occupation were a free-for-all. Every night, teenagers came out to block the roads with flamethrowers, guns, swords, and cars. Sideshows took over adjacent intersections, and by nightfall, caravans had formed to loot the rich parts of the city. The occupation of space wasn't limited to the parking lot. It was porous and diffuse, mobile rather than fortified. We showed up at the Wendy's almost every single day, enjoying the distinctly anti-political feel of the space. But as time went on, we were unsure as to the endgame of the occupation. We had been busy building infrastructure and forming alliances with some of the security team, but hadn't had much conversation with anyone about what would happen next. In this period, Rayshard Brooks's family and the Community Movement Builders Group advanced a proposal for the space to become a permanent peace center. Here's Kwame Olafemi speaking recently about the work CMB was doing. In that space, after that took place, um, Rayshard Brooks' family, right, his sister, um, people that he knew, his wife, um, they got together and they were, and, and, you know, his sister was basically said that, you know, out of all of this pain that's happened in this place, we want to be able to build something that's going to be, that's going to bring peace to our community, right? People's Town is, um, you know, my organization, Community Movement Builders, we organize um, in the Pittsburgh neighborhood, which is right next to uh, People's Town, which is, uh, you know, where I live, it was literally, uh, I, I could walk to that Wendy's where, where Rayshard Brooks was murdered. And that entire area, Southeast and Southwest Atlanta, is, um, you know, poor working class black communities, right? Um, heavy police, ov- overly policed, um, you know, not a lot of uh, resources available. And what uh, what Lady A, um, Rayshard Brooks' sister, was uh, trying to do was build uh, Rayshard Brooks Peace Center. Take the Wendy's property that where uh, Rayshard Brooks was murdered and turn it into a center where folks can have resources, where folks can be able to really just take a break from the everyday struggles of living in the community and be able to have, um, you know, we were going to be developing uh, food uh, networks, mutual aid networks out of that program, my organization, Community Movement Builders. There was also going to be, um, you know, job training facilities, right? places for us to learn to do know your rights trainings. And at that location, we actually already started doing that, right? So uh, in the, it was a memorial site for Rayshard Brooks, but then also uh, it was a liberated space where folks, you know, where his, where Rayshard Brooks family and his friends came, made sure that, you know, black folks could come in there and made sure people were safe. Houseless folks uh, could come there. Tents were set up, even a bathroom was built so that people could use the bathroom out there um there was um you know food barbecues on every single day people could eat people could uh rest all those different types of things and then there was these ongoing trainings vigils and other aspects to be able to build out with this kind of peace space right i'm giving you all this context to be able to see to again to give you the narrative about where how cop city was built out of it now this started to get a lot of publicity right you know there was a lot of people that were coming in it was becoming a, a real mark in the city i was when i when i would come out there there would be people that would come from out of town right from like memphis from tennessee from all these other states to come by and see what was being built and what was being done in this location um out of that um i remember the specific day uh the then city council representative joy shepherd came uh she was district district 12 city council representative came saw the space um and within a week um, was already trying to sabotage what was built. When I say that, um, I'm speaking specifically, during that time, this was all outdoors while the family was having negotiations with the Wendy's Corporation to purchase the land at market value. They had already had the money to be able to purchase the land um, to be built to build the Rayshard Brooks Peace Center. Within a week of Joy Shepard coming in, she had intervened within those uh, with those negotiations, sent an email to Wendy's Corporation to say, this is not in the interest of the community. The community does not want this Rayshard Brooks uh, Peace Center to be built here. And under my authority as a city council D- district 12 representative, I don't think this should take place. After she sent that email, 
all negotiations stopped, right? Organizing that took place afterwards um, was, you know, we, we knocked on every single door in the People's Town and in Pittsburgh neighborhood. Um, and we, you know, got petition signatures. We um, had conversations with folks unilaterally. Not a single person said that they did not want the Rayshard Brooks Peace Center in their uh, in, in, in their community, right? Because why would you not want that? Something that has that's bringing resources into the community. This was itself a minor utopian vision, modest, place-based, and an effort to carve out a space of peace from a violent world. However, the blockage of this proposal led to a sequence of tragic escalation and repression between the security team and police at the end of the Wendy's occupation. The George Floyd uprising caused the Atlanta Police Department to suffer a historic collapse in morale and undermined any idea that the city's power structure was stable and broadly supported. In response, the private Atlanta Police Foundation undertook a campaign to shore up police power and capitalist stability. In the immediate aftermath of Brooks's murder, the APF issued $500 bonuses to every cop in the city. The next year, the APF unveiled a plan for an Institute for Social Justice, which drew on the rhetoric of Martin Luther King Jr. to legitimize a $90 million police campus. This project was intended to boost cop morale and suture over divisions between the police and Atlanta's biggest corporations, such as Coca-Cola and Waffle House, who all sit on the Police Foundation's board. This Institute for Social Justice was slated to be built over the exact land formerly known as the Old Atlanta Prison Farm, and which had previously been set aside for the South River Forest Division on Atlanta's south side. Neighbors and grassroots organizers quickly saw it for what it was, a playground for police and a hallucinatory vision of a police utopia. It included a huge simulated neighborhood where cops could allegedly practice non-racist interactions in a simulated black barbershop, but in which they could also prepare for the coming insurrections presaged by the 2020 George Floyd uprising. This was a fake city that would be malleable to police ordering in a way that no real city ever submits to the cops. People from across Atlanta quickly came to call the project Cop City, and the Atlanta Police Foundation quickly dropped the social justice moniker under a hailstorm of mockery and criticism. At the same time, DeKalb County commissioners further cut up the South River vision by trading Entrenchment Creek Park to a movie studio owner named Ryan Millsap. He claimed to be swapping in other land in return, but that parcel was freshly bulldozed and much smaller than the public park. His plan was to build a vast soundstage there as part of Georgia's bid to become the film industry's low-wage alternative to California. Thus, as the movement grew to challenge this enclosure and destruction of the South River Forest, it adopted as a framework the slogan, No Cop City, No Hollywood Dystopia. Both a police training center and a movie soundstage represent flights into fantasy from climate change, economic crisis, and growing civil unrest. Neighbors quickly pointed out that destroying the forest would worsen flooding and heat island effects, which were already growing problems for the nearby majority black neighborhoods. Organizing and protests spread across the city, as well as a period of people moving into the forest itself, setting up multiple camps in both parcels of land in late 2021. In the summer of 2022, Stephanie Wakefield and Glenn Dyer emphasized the choice posed by both these projects in their piece, Stop the Metaverse, Save the Real World. Quote, The plan to bulldoze a maturing urban forest to build urban counterinsurgency training compounds and produce more streaming content clearly encapsulates the dystopian and careless nature of contemporary neoliberal regimes and the increasingly apocalyptic trajectory thereon. We are entering crucial decades of climate chaos in the 21st century. Heat waves come like clockwork. In the American West, water reserves are at historic lows. Panthers, gorillas, songbirds, bees, butterflies, and frogs are on the verge of extinction. Food and gas shortages and material price spikes have already triggered demonstrations and riots in response. Meanwhile, the dominant solutions to the climate crisis are to either deny its existence outright or enforce austerity measures on the general population. In contrast, the defense of the South River Forest illuminates a possible path forward, one that is nascent, but nevertheless vital in the present, the fight for life. Everyone defending Atlanta's South River Forest is acting both for themselves and those who will inherit the land after them. It's become an existential and also common sense matter of whether there will be anything but avatars and heat waves for those who come next, 
For many people, the only human response to watching the video of George Floyd's murder was to open the door and go outside in the midst of a pandemic and the stay-at-home orders to join millions of others in the street. Today, for many, the only human response to attempts to bulldoze the South River Forest and build a landscape of police training and Hollywood film compounds has been to get up and go to the woods, end quote. What was already at stake then between the South River Forest vision and the dual development projects was a conflict between two ideas of happiness and underlying those two utopian visions. One was of a vibrant forest providing ecological resources to historically under-resourced neighborhoods traversed by bike paths and diverse other uses. The other is of spreading enclosure, perfected control, and sustained profit-seeking despite a rapidly warming world. However, the struggle to defend the forest has begun deepening and radicalizing the utopian character of the South River Forest vision. On July 30th, 2022, Ryan Millsap personally supervised a crew of contractors and police escorts who entered Entrenchment Creek Park with a truck towing an excavator. Using the excavator, the crew attempted to destroy the park's gazebo in the middle of the parking lot, even though the gazebo was filled with people. More park users and forest defenders came out of the woods and were able to drive off the whole crew and set fire to Millsap's truck. In the wake of the successful defense of this park entrance area, the territory of the movement expanded from the sheltered areas of forests to include the Entrenchment Creek Park public lot, defending it from enclosure and destruction by Millsap. In this moment, Entrenchment Creek Park was renamed Wheelani People's Park. Just as the 1969 popular defense of communal space against police invasion in Berkeley, California, led to the establishment of Berkeley People's Park, The shared experience of defense on the south side of Atlanta permanently altered the character of this park. But the historical implications of this change go deeper than the 60s reference to Berkeley, which brings us back to what this forest was outside of the 180-year period we began with. The Muscogee Creek people native to this territory call it Wilani, their word for brown water. Before their forest removal to Oklahoma was completed in the 1830s, the forest was Wilani. Now, once again, it is known as Wilani, even if now due to erosion caused by police operations and clearing the waters even murkier. The 180 years in which colonial violence and enclosure tried to erase their memory now appears as a mere parenthesis in a longer history. The Muscogee survived and began returning to the territory in 2021 with a formal rematriation ceremony and commitment to an ongoing remigration process in April 2022. Jordan Harmon spoke at an anti-repression rally in March 2023 on the power of the survival and the role of the Muscogee in the struggle against Cop City. I also want to express that the type of violence that we're seeing coming from the state is the same same type of violence used as genocide against indigenous people here in Georgia, the same violence used against enslaved peoples here in Georgia, And I need people to understand that the descendants of those people are still here. That I was called here. I came from the Muscogee Creek Nation Reservation in Indian Territory, Oklahoma. Seven generations ago, in 1832, my people were forcibly removed from this land, walked the Trail of Tears all the way to Oklahoma. And now, because of the continued violence that the same entities continue to have over this land, A spiritual awakening has happened that has called our people back to this land. The community has called out to us defending themselves, saying we need the people of this land to come help us. And that's why we're here. And that in 1832, the state of Georgia thought they got rid of their Indian problem for good. But now we're still here and the Indian problem is back. And I will always be a problem for police violence. I will always be a problem for state oppression. And I will always be in solidarity with the communities who are here defending themselves and defending my ancestors who have seen enough violence already. And they deserve to be in peace here. And they, we deserve to come here and have a safe place to have ceremony and have community. And the black residents here deserve a safe space for those things too. And it's not just about the Lilani Forest. The environmental devastation that they're willing to undertake for this is kind of unbelievable. But just know that like the forest is everywhere. We're here in the city, we're surrounded by trees. The people are everywhere. The people are of the forest. 
no cop city in the forest, no cop city in Muskogee Homelands, no cop city anywhere. Harmon was responding to a police raid on the Lakewood Environmental Arts Foundation, a long-term local commune that was hosting dozens of campers who'd come to Atlanta for the March Week of Action. This was only one of many acts of repression in an antagonistic evolution of the struggle, which has escalated since summer 2022. The police repression has left dozens injured or facing serious charges, but on the side of the movement, it has also continually deepened the different idea of happiness the forest defenders are fighting for. In the nine months since the gazebo was destroyed, carpenters and forest defenders have rebuilt some sort of public shelter in the Wheelani People's Park four more times. Each time, the police have eventually entered with bulldozers to smash it, but there's no sign that this has exhausted the constructive appetite of the movement. In the months leading up to December 2022, a range of diverse camps developed in the Wheelani Forest. Some had a more militant character, while others were geared towards welcoming people to the movement. A series of raves and parties pulled thousands of dancers through the forest, a practice which did not contradict either Muskogee ceremonies or regular acts of sabotage against police vehicles or construction equipment. As participants in the movement spent more time in the woods, they tended to become more attached to this particular place. The movement was becoming territorialized. They became more comfortable calling themselves forest defenders. This combined process of construction and defense made the Wilani Forest resemble more and more what Jay Winter calls a minor utopia. The minor utopia is grounded in the here and now, representing an imagining of liberation on a smaller scale versus the abstract social plans and globe-spanning ambition associated with major utopias. The movement's insistence on Muscogee claims to the land and the specificity of the history and practices indigenous to this particular place are key to this distinction. It is from Wilani that this movement can build an experimental approach to climate change that is as modest as its name, a place of brown water. Yet this approach is also earth-shaking in that it calls for people everywhere to defend where they already are, to carve out climate refuges that locally moderate the worsening heat waves and water shortages. Frederick Neyra, in his response to the movement, lays out the implications in this way. Quote, Let us imagine for a moment that every place in the world is a forest, a lake, a desert, or a cloud, a real or a ghostly forest, full of life or reduced to a tree on the street corner, a lake or a puddle, a cloud that provides the water I need. There would therefore be nowhere on earth that is not affected by what the depopulators do with it, nowhere on earth without a potential act of political resistance. From that point forward, an underlying communication between all parts of the earth, a communication not constructed step by step but immediately active. What would be the community that would surface from this planetary communication? End quote. There's a real difference here between the global ambitions of major utopias and what Neyra calls planetary communication, which is the emerging network of local territorial struggles and minor utopias starting to coordinate with each other to challenge the depopulators, to stop the cop city builders, to block the flows of capital. And of course, these challenges will be met also with escalating police violence. In December 2022, a number of police agencies launched the largest and most militarized of a series of evictions against Wilani. Before this, the cops had been afraid to seriously enter the forest. They feared alleged booby traps, not to mention the determined, nonviolent, and violent forms of resistance, whether from those sitting in treehouses or those throwing fireworks at them and running into the stands of woods. They were afraid of getting stuck in the mud and the brown water. Now they came with drones and helicopters and all-terrain vehicles, violently clearing the camps. The arrests that month led to the first domestic terrorism charges the movement faced, slapped on people who'd simply been in treehouses or walking at the edge of the forest. Even though this was the most violent eviction yet, it was also simply the series and the latest of state attacks. People had been arrested before. Structures had already been rebuilt several times. Forest defenders returned again and began small camps despite the police and the winter weather. Cops returned on January 18, 2023 to attack these diminished camps. During this operation, they arrested more people and charged them with domestic terrorism. But in one case, the Georgia State Patrol surrounded the tent of a forest defender named Tordigita and shot them 13 times while they were seated cross-legged and with their hands up. Video recordings of nearby cops suggest that in the crossfire, one cop was hit by friendly fire. The GSP and Georgia Bureau of Investigation tried to claim that Tortuguita shot at them first. But the aforementioned recordings, as well as an independent autopsy, have both disproven these grim lies. Belkis Tehran, Tortuguita's mother, flew to the U.S. from Panama on an emergency basis. She had this to say about the murder of her child. 
My child Manuel Esteban Paez Terán was killed here in Atlanta on the 18th of January 2023. We still do not know anything. I was, it was killed our most beloved family member and the most caring person that any group, group of people could have, and there is only silence. Manuel loved the forest, gave them peace. They meditate there. The forest connect them with God. I never thought that Manuel could die in a meditation position. My heart is destroyed. I invest so much time, care, and dedication to educate my children to become active members of a society. I gave them love and compassion as tools to make the world a better place. But now there is no answer. Answers. I try to be, to be strong, to continue Manuel's legacy for the love of my family and for all those love Manuel. I want answers for my child homicide. I'm asking for answers to my child homicide. I am suffering for my right to, do, to this answer and that I have not been given and I deserve, I deserve answers. Thank you. Even though U.S. military forces and corporations have regularly supported death squads killing land defenders and indigenous militants in Latin America and elsewhere, this was a sinister boomerang of openly murderous political violence returning to the imperial core. This terrifying and tragic event galvanized thousands of people to enter the movement. Despite deep trauma, hundreds attended vigils and participated in mourning events across Atlanta. And despite the threat of harsh repression, the movement's largest demonstration yet attacked the Atlanta Police Foundation headquarters in the offices of corporate backers in a revenge march. People across the country began organizing to reoccupy the forest in a week of action called to begin on March 4th. This week of action kicked off with a South River Music Festival headlined by some of Atlanta's most important indie rap and rock performers like Rory, Faye Webster, Suede Cassidy, and Zach Fox. The morning of March 4th, 400 people marched into Wilani People's Park and began rebuilding the camp there, as well as infrastructure for the music festival. That night, 1,000 people attended the festival with an atmosphere of mixed festivity and mourning. The festival continued the next day, even as separately in the afternoon, 300 people entered the Cop City construction site a mile away and sabotaged the equipment, setting some of it on fire. The cops fled the construction site and didn't try to stop the sabotage. Instead, an hour later, the cops attacked the music festival in great numbers, tasing and beating people at random. They detained more than 40 attendees, but released everyone who had Atlanta driver's licenses. By focusing on the 23 detainees with out-of-state licenses, the cops were able to spin a narrative of outside agitators, a tactic familiar to veterans of the civil rights movement. These 23 people, arrested at random at the music festival and injured by the cops, were then charged with domestic terrorism. Hundreds of people near the main stage, though, were able to negotiate their way out to safety while many others fled through the forest. Jeremiah Percival from the band Suede Cassidy described his experience that night in an interview with Unicorn Riot. We played as the sun was setting, and so I was kind of standing there playing the show, and as we are playing, I was playing um, all along the watchtower, funny enough, um, and there's a bunch of helicopters just going around, and it was, it, they had been going around all day, but this one was different because it seemed like they were just circling, particularly here because you could tell that they were coming in, and they're trying to make, see what's going on over here. Um, but around probably like halfway through our set, um, 
they were actually started arresting people because somebody got on stage like they're arresting some people and some people started going that way we have all our gear so we started just packing up and uh we sat behind the stage and just waited to hear what was going on how y'all doing out there it's fuck 12 every day of the year Remember, remember, not just saving the forest. There's black people that have been living here forever that they are trying to encroach in their space and our fucking space. Fuck that. With, with music and all art, especially in times like this, they're probably the most necessary thing to combat ideals that aren't for everybody. If you don't have somebody screaming in a mic over some music, and if that's a threat to them, then you know how powerful that is. The music is just expression for everybody here to feel the same wavelength, to be be present at the same time, and it's just important to make sure that everybody feels comfortable, everybody's enjoying themselves, everybody can relax. That's the whole point of art, especially music, like making people relax, making people think. So the fact that that's where they, that they came for, Music Filter just shows exactly where they're at. You know what I mean? They're not very, I don't know. It seems like people's souls are intact on the other side because I can't really see how you could see little children in a bouncy house and families and people eating and think, we should go raid this. It makes no sense. And once again, the people of the county don't want them to build this. The citizens here do not want it. So for them to even keep suggesting and keep being so forceful shows you where their heart's at and where their souls are at. And I know a right, I know righteous causes when I see one. And like I said, I will keep saying this, the forest, I, I'm, I'm an Eagle Scout. I've been president of Sierra Club. The forest is important, we love trees, but the more important thing is that the black people in this area do not want this here. So that's more important to me than anything of those people's comfort because Yes, we, re we have to protect the forest, I get that, but the forest is not more important than the black people that have lived here for their whole lives. That's just facts, like, it's not even comparable, you know? It was very Stormtrooper-esque. Um, <laughs> it's the only way I can say it. Uh, I, I was talking to some people from my band about how I, it, it's, it's, it's a good reminder to know how like fascism is in this country and how it's very much alive. There's no reason why you should be pointing a AR-15 in a bouncy house. Like, there's no crime going on in the bouncy house. I remember this family of four, and this little girl, and this is a little white girl, so you know, like, <laughs> if they saw that, it would've been done. But this little white girl was just crying so hard because she had no idea what was going on. And she kept seeing the flashlights coming over here, and they had to, like, kind of hunker them down so they could calm them down and, like, you just traumatize kids for nothing. And that's just a little white girl. All the black kids that live around here are gonna be traumatized if they put the cop city up. So it's, it's what is the point of just traumatizing kids, trying to get them to be scared of authority figure, like y'all can really just fuck off. The black people that live around here need to have peace of mind and there's no peace of mind when your enemies are the back door. Because if this is, 20 years ago, this area was so over-policed, still over-policed, but they were even more vicious with how they dealt with citizens, like uh, what the units, like the Red Dog unit that uh, that would come around here and just, it's, it's too much. We don't need more violence. Like, pretend violence makes more violence. I'm for all defunding police, but if they're gonna do anything, you should put into their ethic training, not them practicing warfare on a fake, city terrain that is literally insanity to me um this is doesn't sound like american to me but actually that is very much american i take that back that's the most probably the most american thing that could happen so yeah in spite of the police terror that night the week of action continued dozens of people stayed in wheelani people's park that night a number which grew again throughout the week a new pavilion was built in the parking lot and demonstrations continued in downtown Atlanta, despite legions of police. Community movement builders and Black Voters Matter held another record-breaking demonstration a few nights later, one whose speakers emphasized the twinned problems of a colonial, white supremacist past and the need for liberatory futures, meeting in the present of the Wilani Forest. 
emphasizing the importance of utopian horizons. This speaker addressed the potential for cooperative organization and black autonomy. This is Julian Rose with End State ATL. First of all, it's f- 12 all through the fold, fold. Really finna take a stand. We really going toe to toe. You don't let a city motherfucker, you sell it. Streets really win this motherfucker, you jealous. Look, normally I would freestyle, but I actually took some time to write things down today. Okay. Stop Cop City! Stop Cop City! Stop Cop City! It's really beautiful to see how the community has come out today at the King Center. Unfortunately, that community also includes the police, but we're working on that. We're working on that. We're going to get them out of here real quick. My name is Julian Rose. I'm an abolitionist and a black queer feminist. We have a political tendency to put those who are most marginalized at the center of leadership, governance, and care. That's not because they're the only ones who deserve it, but because they're the least likely to get it without intentional intervention. We have many faith leaders here today, and this is one concept that actually cuts across all religions. You'd be hard-pressed to find a text that tells us to neglect those who are most neglected. And in this way, this organizing tradition is deeply connected to my spiritual journey, and I'm sure it's connected to yours, too. That spiritual journey has also carried me into the solidarity economy movement. Yeah, give it up for that, okay. Okay. Y'all are like, we know these words, okay. To no surprise, the solidarity economy movement emphasizes solidarity. It emphasizes pluralism, many approaches toward a goal. And it emphasizes participatory governance and democracy. And today I'd like to spend a little time talking about this democracy. Now, I know the feds are listening, but I think it's safe to say that I've been to many protests, marches, rallies, sit-ins, and you often hear this chant. Show me what democracy looks like. Okay, so y'all have been too. Awesome. And I can't lie, some days I'm not convinced we're ready to chant these words. I do know protest and free speech are key facets of democracy. But to say this is what democracy looks like on these lands? I don't know. Feels like salt in the wound sometimes. This Stop Cop City struggle has been direct evidence that the government of Atlanta knows nothing of democracy. Andre Dickens was elected in a process that turned out just 21% of regular voters. That's not, that's not eligible voters. That's not 21% of people registered to vote. That's 21% of people who vote regularly. So just how much of Atlanta is that? 50,000 people chose Andre Dickens. Yet, Mayor Dickens seems emboldened to make unilateral decisions at the instruction of the governor, private interests, to, to make permanent detrimental changes to Atlanta's landscape that will ultimately affect millions of people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The audacity. Exactly. The caucasity. The caucasity. In a state with voter suppression and people disillusioned by the electoral process, you have officials espousing the fact that they're of the people. It's a joke. And I get it. Money matters to them. Power matters to them. Public comment does not matter to them. Protest does not matter to them. Justice does not matter to them. Our futures do not matter to them. Our history does not matter to them. Democracy does not matter to them. But what's important is that these things matter to us. They matter to us. And so I have come here to ask you all just one question. What are you willing to do to experience democracy for the first time? If we know this place has never seen a democracy, then what are we willing to do to bring it about? It's something I'm grappling with myself. 
My Afro-pessimist friends and revolutionaries both agree we are at war. The police in the city have said as much loudly with their words and their actions. And to be clear, this is a war that white power structures waged on us long ago. It feels obvious to me that we need warriors, weapons, and I know that that fact may give some of us trepidation. But I want to assure you that we need so much more than soldiers to win this fight. Whatever it is that you do, whatever skill you bring, I just ask that you make it a weapon. The next day, the Wilani Food Autonomy Festival kicked off in the forest, bringing together mushroom farmers, orchardists, community gardeners, plant breeders, and participants in collective land occupations from across this continent and beyond. But the organizers insisted on the importance of thinking through this particular place, saying, quote, Restoring this forest, scarred with a history of indigenous dispossession and prison slave labor, is a complicated task. But we know autonomous food production can break the dirty cycle of land displacement and dependence on the capitalist food system. Moving in this way towards food autonomy is essential to the vitality of all life inhabiting the forest. We want to take this opportunity to share lessons and knowledge in all things plants and learn from the ideas and work of others from all over inside the fertile context of a forest occupation. Now is the perfect time to combine practical discussions of food autonomy with the movement work of defending the Atlanta forest and what Cooperation Jackson calls a strategy of, quote, building and fighting, end quote. So diverse practices and collectives came together in this particular forest with an aim to draw on its history and articulate a shared vision for its future. This inevitably drew on the South River vision of a protected parkland, but now enriched by the needs and dreams of neighbors and forest defenders, not to mention the traumatic death of Tortuguita and so much other police violence. Now people were discussing large-scale ecological restoration, not to make this forest purely natural, but to enrich and accelerate a healing process already underway. Festival attendees planted many hundreds of fruit and nut trees, and they grafted productive pears and apples onto the invasive Bradford pears spread by city street tree planting policies. This was now a vision of communal luxury and collective safety in a food forest, an effort to construct climate resilience and food security for all living nearby or in the woods. Abundia, a longtime movement participant, accompanied Tortuguita's family to a session of the Food Autonomy Festival in which organizers distributed 800 fruit trees to residents of the nearby neighborhoods. Later, she spoke to us about the sacred web of abundance, a concept articulated in relation to Muscogee cosmology and in discussions with Tortuguita. It is a vision of utopian relations particular to this place. So I'm Abundia, and I'm a migrant uh, from Mexico. I'm Nahuatl and Apache, trans femme. And uh, I've been in the South for the past 18 years now. And uh, yeah, I'm a community um, member, organizer <coughs> here in the South, in Atlanta and in Middle Tennessee too. And. Will you talk a little bit about the forest and your relationship to the movement to defend it? Yeah, so I used to live in this area, very close to this forest, the Willani Forest, um, like two miles going like um, we're like south, southeast. Um, and I came here a lot during that time. Then I we call this place Southeast River. And um, before I moved to Tennessee, I... Um, learn about the plans of, uh, you know, building uh, the police academy and the Hollywood studio. And so I started to organize with people, you know, finding out about this project and mobilizing, you know, organizing for finding ways of, you know, uh, oppose this project. And uh, I, I guess, you know, I started the movement since, since it was called in the spring of 2021. Uh, when we are, were on COVID, like on the head of COVID. So um, I am interested in, in, in saving this forest for many reasons. You know, I am obviously strongly opposed of any kind of uh, police, um, you know, um, improvements or giving money to the police or facilities. This is terrible for the city. And it's a shame, you know, that it comes on the heels of all the protests of 2020. And uh, I obviously am very, very opposed to that. But I'm also, you know, this is 
uh, a spot that I used to visit here and I develop a relationship and uh, I always you know been linking it to Muscogee um, culture and the Muscogee people because I have a relationship with the Muscogee uh, tribe via ceremonialism in Oklahoma and I attend to the their sacred ceremonies every year for the past 20 years so this spot is you know also meaningful for me because that relationship particular relationship I know that uh, we had a uh, you know, the Muscogee people always say when I um, talk to them about um, this this place, which is Georgia, the South, uh, that they have, uh, you know, moved on all together and wanted to heal and, um, you know, leave this chapter in the past of the Trail of Tears and Dispossession <coughs> or the homelands. And um, one of their medicine men, um, uh, he started... Uh, you know, to reconnect like eight years ago to the south and to Georgia, and he came. He came here to this area, and he was uh, looking for uh, sacred plants that the Muscogee people use for these ceremonies, and that they don't have in in Oklahoma. And so, I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about protecting these sacred plants in these Muscogee homelands, since I again have a relationship with the Muscogee. We talk about, like, you know, we get everything, like water from the city or water from our cameras, foods and everything, but people are starting to get into knowing more and more Wulani and what we call in this piece weaving, you know, um, back to the Wulani, to the, to the web of Abundance that is Wulani. And we find out so many amazing things. We, like, you know, um, recognize the place and the foods that are here. And then you, we, we, we talk about, you know, this in relationship to connection to our, the communities and uh, creating a space, identifying the space that are and how we, you know, bridge these two things that are happening here in Wilani and, and, and in the other space. Uh, but they are connected, you know, they are always have been connected because our community has, uh, has uh, weaved this, uh, uh, you know, web of... Uh, a mutual aid for like the past 20 years so this is the already you know like being connected to here being connected to um, people that come and, uh, and people that live here and being able to sustain this uh, you know this with with all the uh, our mutual aid before so um, anyways um, that uh, interests us and uh, the notions that came from these like you know um, Web of abundance come from Wilani and come from um, thinking about Muscogee religion because I am like very, you know, uh, involved in Muscogee religion, like I said at the beginning, and thinking about the Muscogee here in that summer, in every summer, how it would be a ceremony here for balancing, you know, uh, renovating all the relations of this web of abundance, how the Muscogee recognize that as very important for their autonomy as people and as indigenous people and how you know that has been always in many ways in, in different ways like what uh, many indigenous people in Americas do you know and taking care always through the year of the web abundance and uh, you know centering on the things that they are creating for for safety for um, for like taking care of each other instead of like having policing you know which ways we have to 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 do that so anyways um that is um uh something that i'm very happy because um there is not many things that are come uh in in the relationship to we specifically coming from this land that is now you know uh the center of this battle in a way Wilani and um I'm very proud that, you know, these, these reflections come as a value for Wilani, but also as a value for uh, any, any, any people organized that wants to defend their web of abundance uh, everywhere, you know, like that people have been doing and high-profile, you know, indigenous fights to web abundance, like wire defenders, the lime tree. But there is every, you know, there are many, many people trying to defend and uh, we hope that, you know, we start a conversation via what we wrote and talking about this world abundance that is like a concept that people relate to. And also um, thinking about the 
the um, commitment of like weaving back as a way of uh, you know like supporting land back and supporting rematriation and the notion of uh, uh, radical stewardship, how that will be looking like in Wilani. Uh, and here is very clear that it has to be anchored on the uh, Muscogee people knowledge of uh, stewarding this land for millennia. Other attendees conversely contributed to a planetary communication sown through the festival. This process included the ceremonial sharing of seeds from the Kurdish Autonomous Zone in Rojava and from a land occupation in northeast Brazil. One speaker shared experiences from Los Panchos, the largest urban land occupation in the Americas on the edges of Mexico City. The Panchos were founded with four principles. Like the first is like to create consciousness and organization is to create popular power. The second is like solidarity with national and international struggles. The third was um, independence from the state and its political parties. They did not want to f the state at all. And they said not only the state, but all the political parties too. Um, because the political parties are part of the bourgeois state. Their largest neighborhood was uh, started on this rubble dump in uh, Iztapalapa, which is the largest borough in Mexico City. Um, it has 5,000 people. It's like 20 acres large. Um, and uh, it's got something like 500 houses, uh, like six apartment buildings, uh, like pretty large apartment buildings, and then a like large section of just like uh, like shacks, basically, like provisional housing. Um, it's everything's run through a general assembly. So every family who has a house or an apartment, um, they go to a general assembly every once a month. The, each family is also in a brigade. So you're in a brigade with 20 other families. And um, the brigade is sort of a space of mutual aid. Like if someone's sick, like they'll just like pass the cup and like help pay for your medicine. Um, but the brigade also takes on a lot of other functions in the community. So like cleaning up the community one day a month, there's like a collective work party to like make sure the like sewage system works because the state doesn't come in. It's like on the community to clean up the sewage system. Um, they, you know, like make sure their trees are nice, their houses are beautifully painted. Um, so they have the work party. Um, they also go to one of eight commissions. Um, very briefly, I think for the sake of this struggle, it's interesting. One of the commissions is the like vigilance commission, which runs their uh, security and justice system. So this is the largest urban territory in the Americas where police don't enter. Um, and they have their own like system, which is basically one day a month, you, your brigade is responsible for like keeping the gates of the community guarded. Um, they don't have weapons. Um, they just have a stick and a whistle. If something really bad happens, you blow the whistle. Everyone blows the whistle. Suddenly the entire community is ringing with whistles. Everyone comes running with their stick. And like in May 2020, like armed uh, like narcos showed up uh, to deliver a demand letter and they chased them off. They've also chased off the electricity company, which is continually trying to reattach, like to basically make them pay for electricity. They just steal their electricity. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a very effective security system. There's no police. There's no specialization of a police function. There's not like, oh, we don't have the police, but we have this guy who's our sheriff. Like they don't have that. Um, and then they've been working over the last couple of years to develop a system of justice based on transformative justice. They used to do things like just strip people who rob stuff naked and march them through the community with a sign. They decide that's bad. Now they're working more on like, you know, okay, you've done something bad. Why don't you like clean the gutters for a bit or like go to see a psychologist? It's complicated. There's, there's a lot there. Um, but the other commission they have, one of the other eight commissions they have, they also have a pirate radio station. They got like cool sports stuff. They have a health clinic. They do like lots of theater and education stuff. Um, there's other other things are going on. If you walk through this community at night, there are just like little meetings everywhere, just like all the time. Everyone's always in a meeting, which is like maybe one downside of autonomy is that the number of meetings you have to go to goes up a little bit. Um, but uh, one of them is the uh, Urban Agriculture uh, Commission, and they explicitly say that their goal is to build food autonomy, not food sovereignty. Food sovereignty is about sovereign nation states, they don't believe in nation states. They believe in strong autonomous communities, um, in part because of their long-standing relationship with the Zapatistas. Um, but they, uh, 
Okay, there's 5,000 people who live there. It's 20 acres. It's not big enough. The amount of land they have is not big enough to feed everyone. They're, so like, get that fantasy out of your mind. But they have uh, an area that's probably the size of this parking lot, maybe a little bit, maybe half of the parking lot that is like their little urban farm. They have uh, three very large industrial greenhouses where they plant things in rows. Um, and this is all done by the commission members. None of these people are like specialized farmers, except for the fact that a lot of these people are indigenous migrants to the city who grew up farming, right? So there's a, in the commission, um, the way it works is they uh, break into like work parties. Each day a week is like one person, one, one little work parties responsibility to go to like weed stuff to plant stuff to uh like spray their little organic like mixtures of vinegar and soap and whatever on the tomatoes and um they grow a lot a lot of food like i think last year they harvested 400 kilos of tomatoes um they grow uh like corn uh uh like I don't know what it's called in English, like chile coyotes, like these like um, kind of like squash-like things, uh, avocados, a ton of avocados. They've got a lot of fruit trees, so they've got a large amount of like fruit from like uh, plums and apples to like things like misperos, which are like a not mercantileable, nice Mexican small little fruit. Um, they grow um, little. Uh, um, Marigold would be the word in English. Uh, uh, flowers for the Day of the Dead celebration. And in this community, the Day of the Dead celebration is like a remembrance of our fallen comrades political event. Um, so there's sort of like a cultural element. Um, I, I think that one, the way they talk about it is that in the Urban Agriculture Commission, they're learning to love Mother Earth. And they're remembering that they're not just workers, but they're also connected to peasant struggle. So they see it as like a space of learning they like will readily admit like, okay, yes, like, you know, someone will go through the community and sell at cost just to recoup the cost of the seeds or whatever, uh, except they do seed save. Um, but they'll like sell at cost, very cheap, like, you know, a fifth the price you would get in the Tianguis, like their tomatoes or whatever. So, you know, you can eat some amount, some like probably like 2% of your nutritional needs are met by this community farm. But more importantly, Everyone in the community has to participate in a brigade, which has to participate in the commission. So on a regular rotating basis, you're in one of these commissions and you're doing something together that like reflects the vision of the life, the dignified life that people want to live. Um, and one of those things you're doing is farming. So while you're farming, you're learning to love Mother Earth. You're um, the people who have like seeds, like a lot of people go back to their hometowns and then come back and say like, I want to plant this corn next year. like we have the best avocados, so we're gonna plant this avocado tree. Um, so it's a way for people who are displaced, like rural people, to continue having a connection to the land. And it's a way that everything is done through like horizontal decision-making, from like what crops to do, what to do with the people who forgot to feed the worms and all the worms died. Uh, like all the minor dramas of like agricultural life are um, collectively decided upon, and so I think of like this both being a like practice uh, like of autonomy, like it's you're literally growing food to feed collectively your community, so it's a material practice of autonomy, but it's also a practice for autonomy. Autonomy is a horizon. It's a, it's a way of like building the capacities to work together and make decisions um, to, to be prepared to organize in other domains of your life. The Food Autonomy Festival felt like a confirmation that we're definitively living outside the short 180-year parentheses in which a stable colonial order could claim a monopoly on the world and on the vision for this particular territory. A year earlier, the Muskogee had ceremonially announced the remigration to this place, and the collective struggles for Entrenchment Creek Park returned this land to being publicly known by its original name, Wilani. The end of this colonial parentheses cannot be reduced to the end of the state monopoly on violence within this particular territory even though it is signally important that a diverse movement has directly prevented the construction of Cop City there for over a year. The colonial order has also lost its monopoly over the definition of collective safety and planning, and most importantly over an idea of happiness. The movement to defend the Wilani forest continues to develop an older, deeper, newer, and richer idea of happiness, 
one that is necessarily in conflict with that colonial order. In the piece Planting and Becoming, in Eflux magazine, one Wilani forest farmer and defender reflected on this gulf, which represents our best hope for the future. I lean against a tall tree while an Atlanta Police Department helicopter thunders overhead, 50 feet above me just beyond the canopy. The people in the chopper believe that this forest will be raised and turned into the largest police training campus in the country, including munitions and firearms ranges, a mock city for urban combat drills, and the largest soundstage complex on Earth. The latter, they think, will be used to produce Hollywood movies and virtual reality. I instead believe that the forest will remain a forest. We are at war. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.